uh, this morning. Well, if you're taking notes or you have the handout or you're looking at the slides, you can see the title for the message is Blessings for the House of Joseph. Blessings for the House of Joseph. We'll be in chapter 48 of Genesis. Well, in our study of Genesis, as you'll recall, we've encountered uh, several blessings. Uh, Theologians and uh, the commentators on Genesis would call this maybe a theology of blessings or uh, the blessings motif. Uh, Basically, the blessings in Genesis are a distinct feature or dominant idea throughout the entire book. Okay, so in our long journey, 48 weeks at this point of Genesis, at various points and various times in uh, the narrative, we have come across blessings. Either it could be a blessing from God. Um, Oftentimes, it's blessings from one uh, patriarch uh, to another. Um, So it's it's a common idea theme in in Genesis, uh, the Hebrew word for Genesis means uh, to bless or uh, to enrich. Okay, so to bless or to enrich. But it's interesting when uh, you look at blessings in uh, Genesis. Blessings in Genesis have um, a divine bent, uh, a prophetic uh, idea. They project forward. So many of the blessings that we see, when those blessings are pronounced, it's as if it is projecting future events or things that will happen in the future. Again, that, that's unique to the Genesis narrative in the biblical world. I mean, I think from even our perspective in our own lives, you know, we have blessed someone in the sense that maybe we have prayed for them about a, a situation or a circumstance that they may be in that the Lord would see them through. We've done that before, and that's fine, of course. But when we get to Genesis, these blessings have a prophetic, uh, a prophetic idea. There's a future fulfillment uh, that comes from them. There is a projecting forward. If you remember all the way back to Genesis 27, when Isaac blessed Jacob, there were three key features uh, of that blessing. Uh, there was a blessing on the land. Uh, there was a blessing directly related to the idea that from the line of Jacob would rise a powerful nation. And then also in that blessing was a reaffirmation of the Abrahamic covenant that would find its fulfillment in in the future. Again, that's Genesis 27, and that's just one of the examples of sort of the blessing motif that's found all the way through uh, Genesis. Now, I started there because as we begin to wrap up our study in Genesis, uh, chapter 48 and chapter 49 are essentially two chapters that record Jacob's blessings to his sons. And in particular, in chapter 48, our text today, uh, there's an emphasis on Jacob as he blesses Joseph's sons, as he blesses Joseph's sons. 
So let me give you a summary of chapter 48, and then we'll work our way through it. In Genesis 48, Jacob adopts, this is, it's really interesting here, we come to an ancient world adoption sort of ceremony, but Jacob adopts and blesses Joseph's sons. And in so doing, he gives Joseph the blessing and birthright of the firstborn. Thus, Jacob reveals his confidence in the purposes and promises of God as they relate to the Abrahamic covenant. So that's our overall summary and theme. Uh, Jacob is going to adopt Joseph's sons, and in so doing, that is signifying that he is blessing Joseph, and Joseph will be the one that will leave the book of Genesis, if you will, with the blessing and the birthright of the firstborn. Now, that's critical because all through Genesis, we've been tracking that Genesis 3.15 seed, and there has always been a blessing on that particular line or that particular patriarch or that person that the seed would ultimately go through. So there's a lot going on here in chapter 48 and 49. I'll deal with 48 this week. Uh, Weathers has 49 in two weeks. But it sort of brings to fruition all of the blessings and gives us an indication of where that 315 seed uh, will go through. A spoiler alert, it's not Joseph, although he does have the birthright and the blessing by the end of the book. So it's, it's very unique and there's a lot going on here. But we'll work through some of those, some of those details. Well, what is this blessing trying to accomplish as we get into the text? Well, God's purpose in these, or this blessing and in 49, is to show that the Abrahamic covenant will ultimately come to fulfillment. Remember, that's really been the main idea beginning in chapter 12, running through 50, is that the Abrahamic covenant will come to pass, and it's going to come to pass through these people. And we'll talk about Joseph's aspect of that uh, today. So this chapter begins with an introduction, a very brief introduction, and then we'll get into the two major scenes over these couple dozen verses that we see here. So let's begin looking at the blessings for the house of Joseph by sort of getting an introduction to the scene. That's what will kick us off here, an introduction uh, to the scene. You pick up with me in verse 1. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength, and he sat up in the bed. Now you can see there with the time marker there in verse 1, that significant amount of time has passed from chapter 47 now into chapter 48. Now it came about after these things. So you can glance your eyes back at chapter 47, verse 28, and it tells us that Jacob has been in Egypt for 17 years. So since he first arrived in Egypt, he has been there for 17 years. So the time stamp in chapter 48 picks us up sometime uh, at the end of that. Verse 1 also indicates, as we would expect due to his old age, that Jacob is sick. 
That's an interesting word here. Whenever this word sick is used in deathbed scenes, which this is exactly what this scene is, uh, Jacob is essentially on his deathbed. Whenever this word is used, it, it is interconnecting his sickness with death. I mean, yeah, he's old, <laughs> but he's, he's sick, and this sickness is ultimately what's gonna cause his death. So Joseph, his favorite son, and really the main character through these last 13 chapters of Genesis, he's made aware of, jo- or of Jacob's impending death. So he brings his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to Jacob. Now, there's, there's such a subtle change here, and I want you to see this, and I think it's highly significant. Notice here, at the beginning of verse 2, when it's describing Jacob and his sickness, notice that it uses his name Jacob. And then at the end of verse 2, when it tells us that he collected his strength and he set up in bed in anticipation of making blessings on his 12 sons, what name does it use? Israel. That's absolutely critical. So what that is telling us as the readers is that as Jacob, Israel, he sits up in the bed and he's going to make these pronouncements and these blessings that have a prophetic fulfillment. It's now telling us that there's going to be an entire Abrahamic covenant idea grouped into the blessings that he's about to give. Okay? That's the uniqueness of the name Israel being used there. This is a blessing meant for the nation as it connects to the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. It's a national sign, essentially. So we're out of the introduction now, so let's get into the actual uh, sections or the, the, the two main scenes here. The first one is that Israel speaks of the past. Israel speaks of the past. So as he begins to work his way into the blessings of Joseph and his sons, He's going to recall events from the past uh, to to prime the pump, to let us know what exactly is in view in his mind when he's giving these prophetic blessings to his sons. And it's critical because this plays out in the nation of Israel's history and later on Revelation, okay? So Jacob speaks of the past, and he does so in two ways. The first way is that he recalls the Abrahamic covenant. And we're gonna see that in the verses to come. That as Israel speaks of the past in anticipation of the blessing of his sons, he's gonna recall the Abrahamic covenant. He's gonna recall it. So look at verse three. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now you'll notice, and you've been here for the many months we've worked through Genesis, the language in verses three and four is filled with Abrahamic covenant language. So if you go back and you compare Genesis 12, you compare Genesis 15, you compare those texts here, you can see real easily that as Jacob is making these pronouncements that he's drawing back on the Abrahamic covenant. In fact, you notice here that he calls God, God Almighty. I mean, this is a direct 
reflection of the Abrahamic covenant. This is a direct reflection, by the way, when God blesses Jacob earlier in Genesis, uh, this title for God, uh, God Almighty. I mean, just take your eyes back over verses three and four. You've got God Almighty, which is taking us back to the Abrahamic covenant. In verse four, Jacob is speaking of being fruitful and numerous and having a great people. Remember, a people that is as vast as the stars in the sky and the sand of the uh, sand and the dust of the earth. Notice here at the end of verse four, it's referring to land, descendants, and an everlasting possession. I mean, so this is just oozing Abrahamic covenant. Remember, the Abrahamic covenant is broken up into three parts, land, seed, and blessing. All of that is found here. And then that's important as he begins to bless Joseph and his sons. Now, the second way that Jacob speaks of the past is that he recalls his favorite wife. Interesting point here. But he does. And this will answer a crucial question for us. Why is Jacob blessing Joseph? Well, I gave you the answer because Joseph is from his favorite wife. In fact, that's why he blesses Joseph in this chapter and in chapter 49. We'll see that in two weeks. So look at verse five. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers and their inheritance. Now as for me, when I came from Paddan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So the text informs us, and this is unique, we haven't seen this in Genesis before, so this ought to grab our attention, but the text informs us that Jacob intends to adopt Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So what we have here, and there's not a great description of it, but what we have here is an adoption ceremony, an adoption ritual that would have been common in uh, the ancient world. If you look back here at verse five, it's very interesting language. Jacob tells Joseph that Ephraim and Manasseh will be to him like Reuben and Simeon. Very interesting language here. Now, <clears throat> we remember back to previous chapters in Genesis, things didn't go too well for Reuben and Simeon, if you remember back to chapter 35, verse 22, Reuben, the firstborn, committed sexual immorality with Jacob's concubine, so he was discredited from that top spot. Simeon, if you remember back to chapter 34, he was involved with Levi in the brutal murder of the Shechemites. So son number two was booted out of that spot. So Jacob brings in Joseph's sons and he tells Joseph that Manasseh and Ephraim 
they will be like me, or they will be like Reuben and Simeon to me. So in other words, the two sons, Reuben and Simeon, although they would not be removed from the family, what we're being told here is that Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, will now rest in the top spot in Jacob's mind. So he tells Joseph that Joseph's sons will slide into the status of Reuben and Simeon. They will be full recipients of all that Jacob has. Not only are they his grandsons, but they will also now act as adopted sons. And by the way, out of all of Jacob's sons, out of all the other grandsons that he has, only Ephraim and Manasseh will be viewed this way. And let me also add In the ancient world, this type of adoption, this doesn't mean that they are no longer Joseph's sons. Okay, so I don't want you to think that Ephraim and Manasseh are just somehow disconnected now from Joseph. That's not the idea. We'll see that here in just a minute. But why did Jacob bless Joseph's sons in this way? Why not all the other grandsons mentioned in chapter 46? Well, verse seven tells us. Because Ephraim and Manasseh are the grandsons of Jacob's Uh, favorite wife. We see that in verse seven, Rachel. So although the blessing on Joseph's sons has immediate implications as it relates to Joseph and his prominence, the blessings also highlight Jacob's love and affection for Rachel. And it's important to note here that Jacob recalls the location of her death, which will ultimately be, and this is important, The location of Rachel's death will ultimately be the location where the future tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh will reside. Okay, so there's some unique connections there in that blessing. Paul Twist has rightly noted, Jacob's special treatment of Joseph is an attempt to honor his favorite wife, whose death he now brings to mind. By adopting Ephraim and Manasseh, it would seem that his intention is to increase her offspring. A very pertinent point, and that's what we see developed in these early chapters or in these early verses of chapter 48. So Jacob has recalled the past. He brings in the Abrahamic covenant. He brings in his favorite wife, Rachel. And he sets the stage for being able to pronounce the future blessings. And this brings us to the a third section of our text, and that is that Israel blesses for the future. Israel blesses for the future. So in these verses, we'll find four key actions uh, that Israel does, and and these key actions will help identify the the main points or the main takeaways that we need uh, from from this section. And the first one would be that Israel confirms the identities of Joseph's sons. He confirms the identity of Joseph's sons. Now think back with me to earlier portions in Genesis when Isaac is being ready to give the blessing to Esau and Jacob. Remember that whole debacle? There was a little switch around and some scheming and some planning, and ultimately Jacob got the blessing, and Isaac was unsure, at least 
He was sure when he initially gave the blessing of who the son was, but it ended up being the other son, Jacob. So it's key here because Jacob is well aware of what he did many years ago that he confirmed the identity of the sons to make sure he gets this thing right. So that's what he does. He confirms the identity of the sons. Look at verse eight. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. So Joseph brought them close to him and he kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face and behold, God has let me see your children as well. Let's stop right there. So Jacob, Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh are all gathered together in a room. And most likely as part of the adoption ritual, Jacob or Israel asks for the sons and Joseph presents the sons to him for uh, the blessing. Because of Jacob's old age and vision problems, which he had been dealing with for years, you can see that the text shows us that Joseph comes ever close and he presents both his sons uh, to Israel. Notice the end of verse 10. We're told that Jacob, he embraces and kisses the boys. By the word, the word embrace there at the end of verse 10, it's meant to show intensity. So this whole scene is an honest scene. Everybody's all in. There's no deception. It really is a breath of fresh air as we've worked through the narrative here. There's no tricks going on here. There's no scheming. The adoption ceremony is operating under honesty, integrity. Look at verse 11. Put yourself in Jacob's shoes. For many years, many decades in his life, he never thought that he would see Joseph again. Remember, for the longest time, he thought Joseph was dead. And now here, not only is Joseph before him, but Joseph's sons. I mean, he didn't think that he would see Joseph, and he surely didn't think that he would see Joseph's grandkids, but that's exactly what happens here. They're all face to face with one another. So after he confirms that Joseph's kids are really Joseph's kids, the next action that he takes is that he switches the alignment of his hands. He switches the alignment of his hands, and this will make more sense as we go through it. So he knows that Manasseh and Ephraim are there. They're in close proximity. They have embraced. So now Jacob, Israel, is going to switch the alignment of his hands. Verse 12, then Joseph took them from his knees. He took his sons from his knees and he bowed down with his face to the ground. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand towards Israel's left and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right. And he brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and he laid it on the, hand, the head of Ephraim who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands 
although Manasseh was the firstborn. So as this adoption scene continues, Joseph essentially spreads out on the floor, prostrates himself on the floor, and he bows his face to the ground. Now, of course, you know, this isn't worship, uh, but this is respect. And again, if you think back to some of the early chapters in Genesis, there is a bowing down motif. In chapters 32 and 33 of Genesis, when Jacob and Esau reunite with one another, remember Jacob goes before his entire caravan of people and he falls down before Esau and he bows down in front of him seven times. When we looked at chapter 37, remember Joseph had a dream that all of the brothers would do what? Bow down. Of course, several chapters later, many years later, all of the brothers came before Joseph and they did what? They bowed down. Now, Joseph, in this adoption ritual, he comes before Jacob, he comes before Israel, and as a sign of respect and in keeping in line with what we've already seen in Genesis, he does what? He bows down as a sign of respect, as a sign of humility. So then he stands up, and you can almost picture this happening. He stands up and he places Ephraim on the left side of Jacob, and he places Manasseh on the right side. So he positions both of them in accord to receive the blessing that would be due to them, to the firstborn son and then the secondborn son. The ancient ritual would have had the patriarch or the father placing his right hand on the head of the firstborn, which is how Joseph has set up this entire scene. Because in his mind, this is how it goes. But in an interesting turn of events, <clears throat> notice how clear the text is on this, and we need to see this. Jacob stretched out his right hand, and he lays it on Ephraim. He stretches out his left hand, and he lays it on Manasseh. So you can picture this. Joseph is watching, and essentially, Israel, he switches hands to place the blessing. Now what was meant for Manasseh will now go to Ephraim, the younger. Now this shouldn't shock us at all because as we've worked through Genesis, chapter after chapter after chapter, often we've come across the reality that it isn't necessarily the firstborn who gets the blessing and the birthright every time. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter four, we can see with Cain, Abel, and Seth, of course, of course, Seth wasn't the firstborn. Shem was the firstborn of Noah. Abraham was the firstborn of Terah. But when we get to the Isaac-Ishmael situation, Isaac wasn't the firstborn. When we get to the situation we're at here, there's a lot going on with the 12 sons, but the blessings that are happening right here are taking place with Joseph's sons, and Joseph is nowhere near the firstborn in terms of chronology. Where does he land? Yeah, he's number 11. He's number 11. So the idea of the hand switching, although would have been counterculture, you could say, it seems to fit right in line with what we've seen in Genesis. 
So now that we've seen him switch the hands, he switched the alignment of his hands, let's actually get to the blessing. We'll see Israel pronounce a blessing on Joseph. Verse 15, and we're not gonna get very far in this. He blessed Joseph and said, let's stop there. This is absolutely critical. When Israel switches hands to bless Joseph's sons, he is blessing the sons, but in reality, he's ultimately blessing who? It's a blessing upon Joseph. And by the way, this is our big takeaway from this chapter because this is a narrator comment. So Moses is specifically saying, this is a blessing on Joseph. And that's what we've got to take away and that's what we have to see. The blessings on the sons in reality is a blessing on Joseph. Now as we kicked off our time this morning, we briefly touched on blessings in Genesis. But blessings have a true and lasting effect in the Genesis world. So the spiritual blessings that are bestowed on the person, here would be Joseph, are absolutely critical. The blessings would stick. Decades ago, when Isaac pronounced blessings on who he thought was Esau, if you remember, he said, look, I've already pronounced the blessing on Jacob. I, I can't just take that away. So that's how the blessings work here. When the blessing is pronounced, it sticks. It sticks. So Joseph is being blessed. Now, what does this mean for us larger picture? What does this mean for the Genesis world larger picture? What this is telling us is that as we close Genesis, so when we finish three weeks from now, as we close Genesis, holding in his hand, Joseph, in Joseph's hand, is the birthright and the blessing. We have to recognize this reality. As Genesis ends, Joseph is the guy who is now holding the top spot, uh, the spot of primogenitor, the firstborn. He would receive the birthright and the blessing. Now, this is key. Let's depart from our Genesis text and go to 1 Chronicles chapter 5 real quick. 1 Chronicles chapter 5. Let me show you a very important little passage here. First Chronicles 5. Yeah, First Chronicles 5, verses 1 to 2 are a great explanation of sort of the storyline of Genesis. Uh, verse 1, now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. And then it sort of goes into telling us why he lost that firstborn status. We've talked about that earlier. Uh, but if you go down to verse 2, though Judah prevailed over his brothers and from him came the leader. So remember how we've talked about uh, the rise of Judah in terms of leadership amongst the 12 brothers. I mean, he is a leader of the brothers because Joseph was in Egypt. But notice what it says here, and this is a great uh, part of this verse to underline. Yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So it was understood generations after 
uh, Joseph and his family, generations after the book of Genesis, if you will, the nation of Israel understood that Judah was a leader amongst the brothers, but more importantly for our uh, text today and what we're trying to emphasize together is that Joseph had the status of the firstborn, had the status of the firstborn. Now, I've given you a couple more reasons why we would believe that. Obviously, 1 Corinthians 5, I think I put all these on your notes. But if you've got some time this week, I'd encourage you to look into this. But there are severe implications for the blessing of Joseph. So what this tells us is that Joseph and the Josephites will be the leaders throughout the nation of Israel at the close of the book of Genesis. You tracking with me here? This is critical because when we open up the book of Exodus in chapter one, it tells us that this Pharaoh did not know Joseph. So when we leave Genesis, the prominent tribe is Joseph and the Josephites. They are the leaders of all of the nation. It is Joseph and the Josephites who are preeminent, at least to start. And that's born out of this blessing that is given to Ephraim and Manasseh, ultimately to Joseph. That's critical. We also see this in subsequent revelation. At the end of Moses' life, he gives the longest blessing to Joseph. Not only that, it is Joshua who is a Josephite, who leads the entire nation out of the wilderness and into the promised land. Again, this all factors into the blessing we see in Genesis 48 on Joseph. Joshua was a Josephite. Some references there, you can check that on. And also, if you survey the book of Psalms, you will see even the Psalms highlight the fact that the Josephites were the highest ranking tribe. And then one last uh, point of emphasis, which I think is history. Jewish history, Jewish writings, there are some Jews that honestly thought that because of the blessing in 48 and the blessing in 49, that the Messiah could have come from the line of Joseph. So archaeologists have discovered writings that tell us that there was Jewish thought based on these texts that the Messiah could have come from uh, the line of Joseph. Now, we know that is not true, and uh, Eric will deal with that in Genesis 49 next time. But I just want you to show you the prominence of the tribe of Joseph based on the blessing here, the blessing in 49, then also the blessing from Moses in Deuteronomy 33. It's critical for us to see. Now, let's switch gears here and let's get back to the blessing. Let's go back to Genesis 48. Genesis 48. So let's look at the blessing. This will be nothing new to you. You'll recognize a lot of the terminology here. It's a basically different way of rehearsing the Abrahamic covenant. 48.15. You pick up as I begin reading. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and may my name live on in them, 
and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude into the midst of the earth. Now, as I noticed, a majority of the language, and you, you saw this, but a majority of the language is familiar to us. It's a rehashing of the Abrahamic covenant. Notice here that Abraham is cited, Isaac is cited, and the fact that they would produce a multitude of people or a nation is also cited. Now, Jacob then blesses Ephraim and Manasseh that they would continue to walk in those promises. So you can see that Abrahamic covenant being transferred from generation to generation. Verse 16, a great nation would come from them. Well, there's a fourth and final action that we see revealed in this blessing, and that is that Abraham reveals his confidence in God's ways. So as he finishes up this blessing, you're going to see that Jacob reveals how confident he is in God's promises and how confident he is in God's ways and his purposes. So you pick up with me in verse 17. Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. And he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. Notice what Jacob does here. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people and he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day saying, by you Israel will pronounce blessing saying, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus, he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Now you'll notice after Jacob finishes giving his blessing, Joseph, you know, sort of gut reaction here, he isn't too thrilled about the hand switching situation. That's not normal. But again, I'd submit to you, what about Genesis has actually been normal with these families? So Joseph interjects and suggests that Jacob switches hands back. Right hand on Manasseh, the firstborn, and left hand on Ephraim, the secondborn. But notice verse 19, Jacob refused to do so. Now it's interesting here. Why would he refuse to switch his hands back? What would compel him in the first place to switch? Well, what has been typical in the Genesis world is that blessings and birthrights and the advancement of the 315 seed, what has been typical is that it always doesn't go through the firstborn, but the subsequent children. And this, this is... If we can connect the dots here, this is so profound. But as it relates to Jacob, although he knew as the younger that the older would serve him, I mean, he knew God had promised to his mother what the situation would be. If, if Jacob would have just lived life and not tried to steal birthrights and blessings, if he would have just been faithful, it would have, it would have been given to him. But instead, as his name means, he was a deceiver and a usurper. You remember that? 
But now in his old age, and now post-character transformation, Jacob is operating as a man of God. So instead of doing anything that would be deceiving, anything that would be um, that, that would manifest some type of usurper role, he willingly takes it upon himself as a pattern in Genesis to switch the blessing and to give the blessing to Ephraim, the second born. But he is fully confident that if he makes that blessing, that God will ultimately bring it to pass without deception, without acting sinful, without causing a ruckus. <laughs> of course, Joseph didn't understanding it understand it at first but he came to understand exactly what Jacob or Israel was doing here Israel was trusting in the faithfulness of God to bring about the Abrahamic covenant through whomever he wished and with Jacob's blessing which has a future element to it he blessed Ephraim he went against the cultural norms and he kept the pattern of Genesis to bless the younger Paul Twist rightfully notes, whereas previously God's intention to best bless the patriarchal line proved effective even amidst deceit, how much more so now as Jacob bestows his blessing with full awareness of the situation? It's amazing to see that radical transformation take place and to see him fully trust God to continue the Abrahamic covenant. Look at verse 20. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. So Jacob is fully confident that the plan of God will continue, and it does. And that reality comes to a close in the final two verses. Look at verse 21. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you, and he will bring you back to the land of your fathers. Verse 22. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. So Jacob has come to learn to realize that when God sets in motion a promise, the Abrahamic covenant, that he will bring it to pass. And it will ultimately work its way out according to God's decrees, his purposes, and his plans through his people. And to conclude this intimate scene in this intimate room, Jacob allots Joseph an extra portion of the land one more than all the brothers. Thankfully now, all of the brothers are on good terms here, so there's no turmoil and animosity to throw him in a pit. But Jacob gifts more land to Joseph. And this is truly an amazing chapter. Chapter 48 sets in motion the fact that Joseph now has the blessing of the firstborn. He has the birthright. And although he is in the top spot, and we see that all throughout the Old Testament, the Genesis 3.15 seed will not go through him. So you'll have to wait two weeks to find out who it actually goes through. Pray with me. God, we are grateful for the treasure that is your word. We're grateful for its clarity on the history of your people. The fact that you have set a plan in motion to grow your people through the line of Joseph, 
to bring them into the promised land and at the same time to bring about the Genesis 3.15 seed through another line. And we're grateful for that reality too. Help us as we close out the book of Genesis to understand these truths and to realize they're all the more pertinent for us today. We're grateful for your son Christ who is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 and that we have forgiveness and redemption in him. It's in his name we pray, amen.